0: Good evening. Welcome to everybody. Glad to have you here tonight. We are in a Wednesday night Bible study. We're studying the book of Romans. We're in chapter 3. And we're going to go through about verse 18 tonight. We have titled this series of Lessons Back to the Basics. The book of Romans has so much theology in it. And it equated to Pro sports teams, uh, in particular baseball, they have a spring training that they uh, do and they just practice the basics hitting, catching, pitching, and all that. Uh, The basics. So we want to come back to the basics of of the Bible and Romans is one of the best books uh, to do that. It is written by the Apostle Paul. How many knows that Paul was a Jew? Uh, He was well trained. And the Lord accosted him for the gospel. He was not serving Jesus, but he was uh, he was serving what he thought was God through Judaism. And the Lord got a hold of his life and uh, just changed him. And so now he's considered one of the primary apostles in the Bible. So... Uh, We're going to be listening uh, to this chapter tonight. So what I'll be doing is I'll read a verse or two, sometimes four or five verses, and we will talk about those. So I'm going to go to Romans chapter three and read verses one and two. The theme of Romans is righteousness of God. When you think of God, he does things right, and that's really what that word means. Uh, doing things in a right manner. What does the Bible say about our righteousness? It's just filthy rags. So what does that mean? We probably need to learn a little bit about righteousness. So that's what we're going to be doing throughout this series of messages. Romans 3, verse 1 and 2. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way. There's an exclamation point in that in my my version of the Bible I'm reading. chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. What we've had in chapter 1 and chapter 2 is that Paul is establishing that all people are unrighteous. All people. Whether they're religious, I'll use that term, person, who knows enough about the law to judge people, yet they themselves, Paul said, are wrong in judging and they condemn themselves. Or the person who is a Jew. We talked about the Jewish people last week as well. And Paul said, there's no benefit to being a Jew as far as circumcision goes. Uh, But this chapter, he comes back and says, well now there are some advantages that the Jewish people have. So we're gonna talk a little bit about that, but we're gonna move on pretty quickly from that. So what advantage would the Jew have? So Paul, last week we talked about it, or a couple weeks ago we talked about they possess the law and they have circumcision. And they're God's chosen nation. But what other way, what other advantage do they have as being a Jew? Chiefly, they have not just the law but the bible is also known have have you ever heard of the oracles of god and that's different than the law it is uh it's when god speaks in revelation so that's what oracles are so god's speaking in revelation before the time of jesus is what paul's talking about he gave the jewish people his word and that is an indescribable gift. Aren't you glad that you have the Word of God? I mean, what would we do? How could we know how to live? So the Word of God is important. And not only does the Jew have the Word of God, but now we have the Word of God, right? It was given to the Jew first, but what did they do with it? They rejected Christ, right? Who is God in the flesh. So they rejected that. And uh, so God turned to the Gentile. You are a Gentile. You're either Jew or Gentile. And none of us that I know of in here are practicing Judaism. Nor were we born as a Jew nationally. So we are Gentiles. So Let's read verses 3 and 4. So remember he's talking about the Jew here specifically in these first few verses. For what if some did not believe? Who's he saying is the some, the Jew? What if the Jewish people didn't believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? And he answers: if you're reading King James, he says, God forbid. If you're reading this version, certainly says, not. certainly not. What version is that, Bill? New King. New King. James. He says, Will it make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. How many have heard that before? As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. So, what's the question that Paul's asking here? He's saying, if some of the Jews or any of the Jews didn't believe would that make God wrong? Would that make what God did for the Jew incorrect? No, because God's not ever wrong, is he? And God has a reason for everything. How many knows that God had a reason for the law? The purpose of the law, twofold. Number one, it showed people that they could not live righteously, righteously on their own. And number two, it pointed to Christ, right? And to grace and the mercy of God and the need for that. So, uh, when, when we look at that, uh, he, Paul said, certainly not. It doesn't mean that God is wrong. As a matter of fact, he says, God's never wrong. God's never lied. He's not a man that he should lie, right? Is what the Bible tells us. Paul is just reminding us that God is justified in everything that he does. Everything that he does proclaims his righteousness. Everything. Even when we don't agree, how many have ever not agreed with what God did or God allowed? You ever just, uh, you know, why did God allow that? Why did I, many times, right, have to suffer like that? But God is justified in everything that he does. God doesn't do things for us to suffer. He does things for us to grow in him and to know him better. But how many knows that this world is filled with sin? Ever since, if we want to blame someone, and how many knows when you point the finger, you always have some pointing back at you. If we want to blame someone, we should blame Adam, Adam Eve. Because of their sin, their unrighteousness, their desire to be God for themselves, that's why we have sin and the effects of sin in this world. And God sometimes simply allows the effects of sin to to run their course. If you live unrighteously and you do certain things, there there are repercussions for sin. So, we can't really blame God. That's kind of what Paul's saying here. Charles Spurgeon, who's a great historic preacher, said of that phrase, let God be true, but every man a liar. He said, if God says one thing and every man in the world says another, then God is true and everybody else is false. That's how true God is. God speaks the truth and he cannot lie. He cannot change. He is, his word and himself is immutable. What does that mean? Without error. There's no change of God. God is the same as the scripture tells us. Yesterday, today, and forever. So, he is always right. He's always righteous. Charles Spurgeon continues on. We are to believe God's truth, if nobody else believes it. How many knows that's hard to do? It's hard to believe God's truth when nobody else believes it. That's why our babies, when they go to school and they're taught evolution, and everybody else seems to agree with that, that they have a struggle with that. That's why when you go to college and they try to teach you all this different philosophy, and it seems that everybody's buying into it. That's why young people struggle with knowing what is right and what is wrong. So we're to believe God, even if nobody else does it, even if the consensus of, of the opinions are against God, he is still universally true, despite the opinion of men. Wow, that's a pretty strong statement. Amen? So God is true no matter what. In every circumstance, God is right. He is righteous. So let's read verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? And then there's a little parenthesis there. And inside it it says, I speak as a man. I mean, do you have that in yours? Some may or may not have that in there. So what's Paul saying? Paul is, it's like he's arguing with himself. It's like there's someone who is, he's rehearsing. Somebody may have this argument, so he's going ahead and he's addressing it. And what he's saying is, some people would say, well, God knows everything about me. God knows how everything will turn out. So if I live however I want to, God already knew that, and God's plan is still going to work. He knows that is true. I'm talking about God's ultimate plan. I'm not talking about God's plan for your life. How many knows that God's plan for this world will take effect whether we do what we're supposed to or not? Because what will God do? He'll find somebody else, He'll use somebody else. So this person is saying, Why does it matter? How can God even judge me since he's still going to get the glory and his way is going to turn out? So how do you answer that? He's saying, is God even just or inflicting his wrath upon us when we do that? Well, the issue is even though God's plan will take place, we are still responsible for our own sin. God had a plan when he placed Adam and Eve on the earth. He knew that they would sin. He knew. But he did it anyway. And he did it because he had a plan. You see, Jesus on the cross was not a secondary plan. I, I say this all the time. He didn't, he, God didn't wake up one day and say, oh, no, what am I going to do? I am not eaten and sin? That's not how it worked. God said, I know that they will mess up, but I wanted people who will love and serve me of their own free will. And so that's why God created them that way. He created them that if they had the potential to sin, but they also had the potential to live for God because they wanted to. That's what God wanted. He wanted children, His servants, His children. We're taught both in the Bible. Uh, to love and serve him because they had a desire to, not because they were forced to. How can God know what we're going to do? Because he knows all. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient, which means all-knowing. And he exists outside the dimension of time. What do I mean by that? I mean that God is not enslaved to time like we are. I'm saying that God can see the past and the present all at one time as it's a big panorama picture. We can't do that. We're limited to what we see or what we have experienced in our short lifetime. But God's not like that. He knows what we will do, yet he gives us the opportunity to serve him, right? And to not mess up i not you thankful that God knows that you're going to mess up, but he still gives you the chance to live right? And then when you ask for forgiveness, he still gives you a chance to live it right the second time, right? Or the third. Here Paul's arguing it doesn't matter uh, that God's plan will turn out right. And uh, we're not just pawns in God's hand. When I say that, God knows how it will turn out, but he is not forcing us to make wrong decisions. Give us free will. So what's an example of someone who chose to do wrong, but God still used it for his glory? I think one of the best examples is Judas. Jesus chose Judas knowing that he would betray him, knowing that he would be a thief. You knew Judas chose to do what he did, but God still received the glory. God's plan still worked out. In this argument that Paul's making, he said, what if Judas said, well, God, if I had not messed up, Jesus went onto to the cross. So how can you blame me? right That's what I mean and this it's kind of a circular argument honestly, but Paul's trying to make a point that we're responsible for our own failures and our own sin because God has given us a way to live right. We haven't got there yet. We know it's through Christ, right? We haven't got there yet in uh, the scriptures. Throughout the Bible, God used the enemy many, many times to correct Israel. I, I, I hesitate to use the word punish, though it's kind of it kind of is. But you know, uh, without punishment or correction, children won't learn and won't grow and mature. There has to be consequence, and so God did that with Babylon. God did that with. Uh, many nations surrounding Israel to correct them and help them. Why would Paul say, I speak as a man? He said, he said this, what if this situation, then he said, in parentheses, I speak as a man. Human flaw? Probably part of that. Because he didn't know all, for sure. What's the other thing? I think Paul was saying, we have to be careful when we even question God. I'm not saying don't ever question God. How many of you have ever asked a question God, why? Uh, I'll just be truthful with you. there are the times I've been mad at God. Never worked out very good for me, but I was mad at God, you know. And I had to grow up and get on my big boy pants and still move on, even though I was mad at God. Calls, a couple things. Yeah, we got to, you know, he's. I don't know all. I'm mad. I have faults and flaws, but also He's saying, let's be careful of how we even question God. How do we do that? All right, so let's read verses 6 through 8. So what's Paul's answer to this opposition? He's saying, certainly not. Don't don't just sin because God's going to get the glory anyway in the end. He said, certainly not. So then how would God judge the world? See, God has one standard. One only. It's not different for me or different for you. God's standard is: here's my will, here's my way, and do we go that way, or do we sin? What is sin? Disobedience, right? When we don't go the way God wants us to go. I mean, sometimes when we think of when we think of sin, we always think of the what we term as the big sins: murder. Adultery, all, the, all, all these sins, but truthfully, sin is unbelief. We're going to get there later. In God and His character. That's what sin really is. And when we don't believe that God's really who He is, then we have the potential to sin and will sin more than likely. But then, how would God judge the world? For well, if the truth of God has increased through my lie to His glory, why am I also judged as a sinner? And why not say, Let us do evil that good may come. As we are slanderously reported and as self affirm that we say their condemnation is just. So what's Paul saying here? We can't say, We're sin abounds. this is scripture, We're sin abounds, grace does much more about. It. But you can't say, because of that scripture, that I'll just let sin abound in my life so God's grace will abound. We can't do that. Why? Because we are personally responsible for how we live. We can't escape that. How many of those people can, we talked about this a, few, a couple weeks ago, we can see the sin in other people, but we struggle to see it in us. Well, my case is special. God understands why I do this he might understand why, but his standard doesn't change based on our circumstance. Because Paul was a preacher of the gospel, people were saying, Jewish people were saying, well, you don't have any standards. You just tell people they can live however they want. It wasn't true that Paul was saying that, but that's what they were saying. He said, well, if you just, uh, today's terminology, you just sell them cheap grace. Go out there and live like the devil, and you're still making it to heaven. Paul wasn't really preaching that, but they were accusing him of preaching that. That's what this is saying. I Men that we can't live like the devil and we'll expect to go to heaven. He's saying we're being falsely accused of saying that, and anybody who is slandering us will, e- will experience God's condemnation of that activity. How will God judge the world? so if god said doesn't matter if you sin as long as i get the glory if god said that then how would god judge anyone that's what paul's saying because god's gonna get glory out of his plan and out of everything that is done so how could god ever judge anyone and how how does that god will judge all of us the way a Christian is judged is different from the way a sinner's judged because we do have God's blood applied to us, and God's forgiveness covers, some people struggle with this, past, present, and future sin. It covers a multitude of sin. His, his forgiveness does, right? Now that doesn't mean that I should say tomorrow I'm going to sin because God's already forgiven me. That's not what that says. He's saying, still try to live right. Try to live for the Lord. Through the power of, not your power, but the Holy Spirit. That's the purpose of the Holy Spirit in our life. So Paul's saying, if God judged that way, then nobody could be judged. You can't do evil so that good will come in a greater way. I love the commentary here. It says, if we find ourselves sometimes accused of preaching a gospel that is too open, and two, centered on faith and grace and God's work, then we find ourselves in good company with Paul. What's he saying? We need to preach. you are saved by grace through faith. And that's the only way we're saved. But that doesn't give us license to live as sinners, right? And who knows that we all sin. And we all have the capacity to sin. All of us do. But there's a difference in occasionally sinning and being enslaved to sin. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But there is a difference in all of that. Yes, it's absolutely an attitude. Sometimes we can mess up and our intent was not to mess up. The best advice I can give, and I try to give it to especially young Christians, hoping and thinking that Christians who have been Christians a long time will already know this. But maybe that's not true. Is as soon as you sin, and the Holy Spirit says, that wasn't right. You didn't treat this person right, or you broke this particular law of or order. You you should have known better than to do this. Then should be hide? That's what Adam Neck did. They hid. And they tried to cover themselves because they realized they were naked. That means they were exposed. Physically, but also spiritually, they were exposed. And God had the answer, but they hid. We might have experienced a different world if Adam and Eve had ran to God and said, we messed up royally and we can't blame each other. And we should have known better. And your word said we might have had a different world, but we don't. And God knew they weren't going to do it. And God said, Where are you, Adam? Where are you? You think God didn't know physically where Adam was? He knew. But he's saying, You're lost. You're lost, Adam. You've gotten out of my will. You're not in my plan and my purpose and my design for your life. And so you're lost. So Adam was was lost. He was condemned uh, to the curse of the law because of his actions. One of the things you realize when God told Adam and Eve that they would die is they didn't die immediately. Good news for Adam and Eve. Aren't you glad? Oh, man, I am. That God doesn't kill us. When we mess up, every day everybody would die, right? Uh, probably. Why is God's justice sometimes delayed? Part of His plan, but also it's part of His mercy. Because if we come to ourselves like the prodigal did and go, oh, I was having a great time until I was in this pig pen and I just realized that I messed up. And he came, the Bible says he came to his senses. I wonder if God doesn't delay judgment upon us to give us an opportunity to come to our senses. But the curse of death or sin, the curse of sin is always death. It came. I don't think Adam and Eve. Or any of mankind would have ever died if sin had not been introduced into the picture. Because there's a potential to sin. One of the most interesting scriptures in my mind in the Bible is that the Lamb, Jesus Christ, was slain before the foundation of the world. That tells you right there that God already knew. Before He even created the world and laid the foundation for the world, is already decided that Christ would, the lamb, would be slain. Many people act like the devil has very little power and very little authority. And that's not really true. I'm not saying he's stronger than us when we have Christ inside of us. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying he's very influential. But he, he, he's been given authority in certain areas. And if a third of the angels are able to be convinced by him, you know, I think we have to recognize that we need to be cautious, number one, and close to the Lord. Verse 9, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged, both Jews and Greeks, that they are all under sin. Under sin.
1: Paul's saying, we're not
0: any better than anybody else. We have said that Jews and Gentiles are are all without Christ. Doesn't say that here, but that's true. Under sin. Interesting term. When Paul says we, he's saying the Jews. Because he's Jewish. The Jewish, he's saying the Jewish person has no more right with God than the pagan or even the religious person, that they're all, without Christ, under sin, under condemnation for sin. That word, under sin, is really interesting. This is part of the question, I know for sure. It's a very powerful phrase, and it speaks of slavery to sin. And it literally means sold under sin. So how is Paul regarding this word under sin? He's saying sin is like a tyrant ruler that sinners are under and they cannot break free. Not in their own power. Even Paul says when I want to do right I do wrong. One of the greatest Revelations in the Bible, all the writings that Paul does, and he himself says of himself, When I want to do right, sometimes I still do wrong. But we're not under sin because we're not ruled by sin. We're ruled by Christ. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. So we're not ruled by it, but we are human and we have the potential to be able to sin we can break free from certain sins. We can get deliverance. We can be delivered from certain uh, sins. Alright, let's read verses 10 through 18. As it is written, here's where we really start to get into some of the theology of Romans. And in verse 23, which we're not going to hit tonight, that's the verse that said, says, for all who sinned and come short of the glory of God. This is pretty close. It says, for there is none righteous, not no, not one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks after God. Now that seems, what do you mean there's no one who seeks after God? I mean, it was, it's God who seeks after us. I mean, when we worship, many times we talk about Seeking after God, but when in reality, God's seeking after us. Truth. In Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned, it wasn't Adam and Eve that ran to try to find God and say, please make us right. It was God that said, you need covering for yourself. There's no one who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. Wow, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, and their feet are swift to shed blood. What did Paul just do? He described a whole lot of physical attributes, a whole lot about the human being and it wasn't good. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God. i want to tell you that this is a very key phrase in this section. There is no fear of God before their eyes. None righteous. Not even one. The Old Testament tells us that as well as the New Testament. They both are in agreement. That. There's none righteous. No, not one. Kind of depressing in a way. Look at the human condition without God. The human condition is not good. There's nobody righteous. Nobody seeking after God. As a matter of fact, then Paul goes into all these things that are wrong about mankind. All of them. There's none righteousness. They don't even know how to be good no one seeking after God. They have together become unprofitable. One really interesting thing that I studied uh, that I found in my study is that word unprofitable means rotten fruit. That gives us a picture there, doesn't it? Everything that they have tried to do is like rotten fruit. Every good that they've tried to do. That's kind of depressing. That's kind of sad, right? There's permanently bad. without well, no, God. No. There is a philosophy that teaches that man is basically good. And it's not true. But, but it is a humanism philosophy that man is basically good. And if he'll just keep being good, and just keep getting a little bit better, and a little bit better, And a little bit better, then he will become God, a little God, to himself. Does that sound familiar? That's Genesis chapter 3. So that philosophy is incorrect. We are not without God or without Christ in our life. We are not basically good. That's awful, isn't it? It's a terrible thought we take uh, made in this image and his likeness to a very extreme we're like him we're an image of him but we are not him look at this their throat is an open tomb what's that speaking of somebody dead in a tomb right so their throat is like that how is their throat like that what does the bible tell us that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So it starts in the heart, but the throat is an open tomb They're speaking and living death. What does the Bible tell us when we're in Christ? That He has given us the power through our tongue of life and death. He can speak life. Matter of fact, many times when I pray for people, that's what I speak. I just say, Hey, I'm speaking health and healing. How do you do that, Pastor? Why do you do that? Because the Bible tells you to. Their mouth or throat is an open tomb. Their tongues practice deceit. What does that mean? I've watched some of the best people that I know lie to get themselves out of trouble. It's human nature. Even a little kid, you walk in, they got cookie crumbs on their mouth, the corner of their mouth. Oreo stains. Johnny, did you get in the cookie jar? Oh. Oh. Still got a cookie falling out of mouth. They're, they practice deceit. Poison is in their lips. So while I say when I pray for people, I speak life and I speak healing and health, I know that we can also speak death and poison. We can do that. I go to a Bible study on Tuesday mornings at 6 a.m. First time I was invited there, Ken Jones is really the leader, but we go to this dentist, he's actually an oral surgeon type person, office, and we have Bible study there in his break room table. And I walk in, first time I met this guy, and he says, How you doing? These allergies are killing me. Well, what did I just do? I spoke death. I literally spoke death. I said, these allergies are killing me. How many of you have ever inadvertently done that kind of thing? It's so easy to do, but you know what they did? not Let me get away with it, and I'm glad. And they was like, don't do that. Don't do that, don't speak that over yourself. So be careful what you speak. As little as that, I don't don't say that kind of thing anymore. If I do this, I catch myself in it and I fix it. It's just like, and people may say it's the semantics, but I'm not claiming CLL, chronic lymphocytic leukemia. I'm not claiming it. I'm not saying I have that. I'm not going to. I'm not going to say it. I'll say the doctor diagnosed me with it. Now he knows the doctor can be wrong and be proven wrong. And God can give you glory, right? You may think that's semantics, but I'm telling you, there's power in what you say. It's very important that we don't speak death and poison. How can you poison? You can poison people's relationships. Well, I'm really good friends with Jim. Did you know that Jim used to do such and such? How was he pouring poison out, right? I don't know anything bad about Jim. I'm just, just saying that. That's how we do right? Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. I'm a watcher on Facebook. I am. Rarely do I post it if I do it's something about the Bible or something going on in the church or, you know, some kind of use it for the good, as much as possible, even though there's a lot of negativity in it. And I see people who say they trust God and say they're saved, yet they curse and they blaspheme God from the same mouth come bitter and sweet water. They don't mix. They don't they're not supposed to come together, right? Now, I'm not saying that I've never said anything I should not said, but I'm saying that's an open platform, and I read it, and you, you just have to be careful what you're saying. And there's some good people, technically good people, who do those kinds of things, but you have to be careful as a Christian what you say has an impact. And so we have to be careful not to uh, do those kinds of things. Feet are swift to shed blood. I'm surprised I never killed anybody. This is mentioned their feet are swift swift to shed blood. This is mentioned right after the comment about the mouth of cursing and bitterness. To slander someone. Jesus took all this to the what we would consider to the extreme. He said, if you even look at a woman with lust, not if you had fornication with her, but if you even look at her with lust, then what have you done? You've committed sin. Tight standards there, isn't it? That's why I said, we sin. And without Christ, we are in a dreadful situation. That's really what all of chapter one and chapter two and this to this point in chapter three is saying is that mankind is in a desperate situation without God. Desperate. None is righteous. No, not even one. I really like the last phrase of chapter 18, verse 18, because I think it kind of summarizes why people sin. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I said this at the beginning. When we recognize who God is, we're not as prone to sin. When we recognize the majesty and the ability of God to justly condemn us and judge us, I so said justly, right? Because we've sinned, then we ought to have a healthy fear of God. Now, I'm not talking about I'm talking about he, us as Christians, we ought to have a healthy fear of God, let alone the sinner. My goodness, the sinner really ought to have a healthy fear of God. Because they're not trying, even trying to live right. They haven't put their trust in God. We too ought to have a healthy fear of God. He's our father. Now, my mom didn't do this very often, but occasionally, if I really messed up, she'd say, You wait till your daddy gets home. <sighs> I wasn't good, because most of the time, I was a little bitty woman. Most of the time, mom was spank us and we'd just like, you know, i cry a little bit and go off and do my own thing. But Daddy wasn't the same. And my dad would set us down and talk to us in a manner that makes me cry, really cry. I'm so disappointed that you've acted this way. Not I'm going to beat the britches off of you, I'm disappointed. And I had a healthy fear of my father. We ought to have a healthy fear of our heavenly father. And when we do, what does the Bible say? That the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. What does wisdom do? Helps us live right. That's why this is saying: if you don't want to sin all the time, and you want to live right, and you, Paul said, the only thing. The only way you can do that is if you have a healthy fear of God. Put God in His place. He's the ruler. He's the king. He is the only one who made a way for us to be forgiven of our sins and to to be made justified and live righteously. He's the only way. The theme of chapter 3 is that all of us, pagan, Gentile, or even religious people, are condemned by our own actions. And the law or the word of God condemns us, our evil deeds. It condemns us, but it is also the source of hope. Because of God's word, what he has said, and because of the answer for sin that is in his word, it's a source of hope for us. And we can receive Christ and receive salvation through him. We can't earn it, it's a gift. That's what we're going to talk about as we go further into Romans. It's a gift. So in this chapter, Paul has described the human condition and that we are unacceptable before God. Now that's hard for us to take. If you go out in the world and ask people, are you so bad that God won't accept you in your current state? I'm not that bad. You haven't received Christ. You are. The problem with our assessment of ourselves is that we always do it in comparison. I'm not as bad as that murderer. I'm not as bad as that thief. But that's not God's standard. God's standard is what? Be holy, be righteous. We can't do it on our own. That's what chapter 1, 2, and 3 are telling us. I'm glad we get to move forward from this a little bit. But in order for somebody to get saved, they must first recognize that they need a Savior. Because you can't come into God's throne and say, here I am, God, my a big, bad self. No, we got to come humbly. And we've got to come before his throne, repent and turn from our ways, and then God will do what God can only do. Okay? Let's go through these questions we got. Question number one. If the Jew does not believe, does that make God wrong, according to verse four? Certainly not, or God forbid. You could add more and say, let God be true and every man a liar, but the answer is no. God's not wrong. Question number two. If my unrighteousness demonstrates God's righteousness, is God unjust if he inflicts his wrath on me? It's the same answer. The message says, not on your life. Not on your life. Yeah, yeah, certainly not. God forbid. That's that's the answer again, right? Question three. Give an example of God using the unrighteousness of man to accomplish his work. Judas. Judas is one. You could have picked another. There are other examples in the Jesus. Bible. Samson, yeah after Samson had sinned and eventually turned back to God and he kills more in his death than he ever did in his life. Samson's a good example. Twisting the gospel into a license to sin is perhaps the peak of man's depravity. That means evilness and badness. Describe the phrase under sin. What does it mean? Slavery to sin. We need God to be able to break free of it. Question number six. What five parts of the body does Paul describe that do no good and how are they evil? Throat, tongue, lips, mouth, feet. Yes. and We went into great detail how most of those, how they are evil. Can't be evil. Question number seven. Didn't really tell you the answer to this, but you might have gotten it. Where wherever there is Sin or evil. Sin or evil, that's correct, there is no fear of God. Fear of God. Okay.